Welcome to Working It from the Financial Times, with me, Isabel Berwick. Today we're looking at flexibility. We all want it at work, but how can we manage it better? The pandemic's really changed the way we work, from those obvious examples like remote working to smaller changes like how your boss now wears bad trainers in the office. But a lot of us want to hold on to that flexibility. And I don't just mean where we work, but also when. That's the big question. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we were working from home during lockdown, I'd occasionally extend my lunchtime walk for a few minutes. I'd do a couple of loads of washing or I'd start prepping a meal. And I want to hold on to that. We all do. But how do we embed that personal freedom in a manageable way going forward? I'm joined by Working It Regular, the FT journalist Emma Jacobs, who's been looking into this. Emma, what ways are companies enabling flexibility at work? It seems to change every week at the moment. So some companies, if they've got distributed workforce across the world, they'll be operating in different time zones. So some of them are just, you know, work is whenever you want, but others have core hours where you have to be available to speak to people in different places. And then there's another example, which is Arup, a global design and engineering company that spread its office hours across seven days of the week. I love that idea, although it does rather get rid of the weekend. (laughs) And in fact, I spoke about it to Diane Thornhill from Arup earlier this week. So we launched Work Unbound earlier this year, and it has been on the back of us doing several pilots. So we piloted flexible working, both in our Queensland office in Australia and also in our Liverpool office in the UK. And that came about from a increase in feedback coming from our membership around wanting more flexibility, not only when they work, but how and where they work. And so we asked them to create the rules for flexibility. How did they want to do that? We only asked them to think of it through three lenses. First of all, how do we continue to produce great work for our clients and on our projects? How do we ensure that we're thinking about our team and the impact that our flexibility would have on our other team members? And then to think about yourself and what actually matters to you in terms of how, when and where you work. So, Emma, Diane's given us these three lens tests and let's unpack that a bit to recap The three things are producing great work for clients, how our own flexible working impacts other team members, and then finally what we need personally. How do you keep those things aligned, Emma? Is that how you think about flexible working? (laughs) Delivering great work for my clients. You. (laughs) Yes, you're always at the forefront of my mind. I think it is really interesting that they started this before the pandemic, but now things have shifted. So clients are possibly more receptive to the idea of flexibility because lots of other companies want to know how to do it. So they've been helped by that. But I mean, they do plan out their weeks together as a team so that they know that if they have to deliver something on Friday afternoon, that can't be the time that everyone's off. And there's obviously peaks and troughs to their work that they can plan around to some extent but I think the key is being open about it and if they can be open and clear when they're taking time off then it helps other people to plan I think that there is a real problem when you 
offer flexibility but don't actually want people to take it, then everyone keeps their plans to themselves and feel embarrassed. And so it, that makes it harder to plan. I think there's a whole world of communication opening up here. I've had so many emails and notifications about software that's allowing you to plan time with your team. So it seems to be something that's really coming on. But for listeners who are thinking about this, what's the biggest barrier to flexible work? What are the traditional arguments people have given against it? I've heard a few. What have you heard? Well, you know, it's unfair on your team and we all have to be working at the same time so that we can talk to each other. Has that been eroded by the pandemic completely, do you think? I think it has made people think about how they work because, I mean, one of the things that when I spoke to people at Arup was that they had to think very carefully about what kinds of work they were doing. So if it was solo work, then who cares when you do it? You can do it at midnight on Saturday if you need to. But if it's collaborative work, then you need to think when other people are available. And so potentially there's a lot more to manage. But I think also it's getting over the kind of learning curve of doing these things so that people are much more explicit about what kind of work they're doing, but also explicit about when they're available and how to manage that. Yeah, it's about not hiding. We all have to be a bit more open about what we're doing and when in a, in a funny way. So let's hear from Diane Thornhill on how Arup navigated this new sort of flexible working. At first, I think it was quite a challenge. So we all understand the word flexibility, but do we really understand what that means when you play it out? We did ask people to think about it from a time perspective, but we also asked them to think about where they could create the best opportunities and the best solutions together. And sometimes that's not always at home. That's also about spending some time in the office. So it's looking for the balance between the two. Could you give the listeners some sort of idea of just on a personal level, what does work unbound mean to you? What does your working week look like now? I could argue that in my role, I had the flexibility anyway. But I think what you now have is a feeling that that's okay that actually there is the permission, there is the acceptance to if I want to start work early and then decide that, you know, the sun is shining outside and I'd like to go on a two hour walk with my dog, then that's fine. And there's nobody sitting back in the office wondering where I've spent the last two hours. There isn't anybody judging. And I don't think work unbound, as we've seen it so far, is radically changing the way people choose to work. But what it is doing is making people think differently. And that's the biggest difference that we're starting to see is that people, including myself, are actually thinking more freely about how they can be their best selves in the work environment by balancing that with the things that they want to do in life. Would you say there's a generational divide in this? I mean, just to be a little bit cliched, older managers might be very keen on a sort of fixed presenteeism, you know, the two-hour walk with the dog might not go down very well. Has there been any barrier from that point of view or is it generational? How's it played out? It's playing out in different ways. We have some people that find this change more of a challenge. I think one of the great things from the Liverpool pilot is when we did a piece of work with the leaders leading up to the launch of the flexible working trial, we asked them to just think about their own behaviours. Our leaders are the role models. Those are the people that our members look to in terms of setting the way forward. And so we asked them to just think about opportunities to leave loudly 
So in other words, to kind of stand up and go, hey, it's three o'clock and I'm going home now to spend some time with my children. And just little things like that are so powerful in changing behaviours and getting people to see that that's okay. Emma, I like the way they describe this as work unbound and take the weekend into account when they're thinking about hours. So you've written about the seven-day working week at Arup and elsewhere. What are the downsides? Is there an erosion of free time, potentially? I mean, potentially, there is an erosion of free time that you never stop working. I mean, I think what was interesting about Arup is actually their working week didn't change that much. So they're not all spreading it out across seven days, which I'd sort of worried about when I read about the policy in the first place. I mean, that might evolve over time as people become used to it. But at the moment, it's quite conservative. Most of the work is done between Monday and Friday. Because the point is about weekends is that everyone else has weekends too. So if you want to see your friends, if you want to spend time with kids that are off school, then Saturday and Sunday are obviously the best days to do it. So I think it is really interesting at how conservative it is but also that it did give people some sort of freedom somebody I spoke to had a partner who works in a care home and had to do weekend shifts at very short notice so then he could kind of flex his week so that he could do some work at the weekend and then take a day off with her. That's great and the other thing I like here is this thing about leaving loudly which I've heard before Can you explain exactly what that is, Emma? It it seems to be one of those phrases that's been around for a long time, but does it actually work? I don't know. I guess it does give people permission. And everybody I spoke to at Arup said that they felt like they had permission that they didn't feel before. And they might have been wrong to think that they didn't have permission to leave early or flex their hours in any way. But they just felt that everybody was able to move their working hours around a bit. But I always feel like, you know, leaving loudly or kind of role modelling behaviour. If you're the boss, you can still do what you want. I mean, who's going to challenge somebody on leaving early if they're three rungs above you on the ladder? I mean, yeah, we think, oh, great, they're going to their kids' sports day. But when I did that, when I had small kids, you know, I had to take half a day off and I was forever sloping out under cover of someone looking the other direction to pick (laughs) my kids up from nursery. I don't know if you had that too. In fact, the pandemic's made me really think about why I didn't take more, I'm not going to say liberties, (laughs) why why I wasn't more flexible in my outlook before, because my job's pretty flexible, really. I don't need to be in the office so much. Really, I could do most of my work between eight and eight at night. And it's just this kind of cultural shift and the idea that it wasn't normalised. I mean, it took me quite a long time to go from five days to four and a half days to four days to spend more time with my son. So I think we were both trapped in a kind of cultural expectation that we would stay at our desks until a certain time. But now I think the issue is around younger people. How are they going to communicate with their managers if the manager's working at a different time or place? Has anyone fixed that, Emma? Not yet. I mean, I think it is hard to tell because we haven't got back to normal working patterns. We don't know how the kind of use of the office will work. But I think there's lots of ways around it, you know, daily checkups, buddy systems, regular meetups, regular days in the office where people can spend time together, more documentation of the kind of processes that people should be doing so that they don't have to bother someone all the time or just rely on overhearing 
how work is done. Yes, I think overhearing has been overdone, rather. So let's go back to Diane Thornhill at Arup and hear how working whenever it suits you has impacted the workforce. It's playing out great at the moment. It's playing out quite differently for different people. So we do have a number of people that see weekend working great for them. They don't see that as a 24-7 culture. They don't see that any pressure that they've got to be doing other things. What they see is that if I work on a Sunday and we've got, you know, some people that do work weekends, what they feel is the freedom to take time off in the week. And that's really important where, for example, their partner might be working in an industry where there are shift work. And instead of being, as one of our members said, ships that pass in the night, they're actually more engaged as a partnership now because they get to spend quality time together. So it's not just about having children or having caring responsibilities. It's about just finding the right kind of equation that works for you. Emma, what do you think we can all learn from Arup? What did you take away from it when you wrote about it? I think that clarity kind of breeds clarity. (laughs) So I think if you're more open about this being a policy that's available to everyone, then they're more willing to come forward and say what time they're working. I think if you keep it to yourself or you feel you're being monitored, then you're more likely to keep your plans hidden. And that makes it just harder for everybody else. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we have to accept that we need to be more open about what we're doing. But the prize for that is a huge liberation in the way we work. I feel quite sad it wasn't open to us when our children were small, but I'm delighted that it's coming on board now. And I think there's a lot to learn. But Emma, what do you think might be the downsides of this kind of work? Potentially overworking and never stopping is one huge downside. I mean, I think the thing with Arup is that they have billable hours. So everybody was very acutely aware of the time they were working in other professions. Journalism, I have no idea how many hours I'm doing. I often work late or at different times of the weekend just to kind of catch up. And so there's no idea that you get kind of loo hours in return. Right. So I think this model has a certain rigidity that would benefit that kind of working environment. And I guess there's also the issue around if your manager's not around when you're around, it can be unpredictable. We've talked a bit about younger employees. And there's also, I think, at the very outside of this, a potential for exploitation almost. You know, if people are are not working as long hours and making junior members of staff work harder, how would you address that? I guess with all these things, it depends on the kind of culture of your workforce and whether you feel that you can speak up against bad practice. I mean, one thing that comes up with a lot of client-facing industries is that you can put limits on how long I work, but if I've got a client that wants me now, then I can't really do anything about it. So that's another kind of area that is difficult. I mean, Arup said that they didn't have those kind of problems because... A lot of people were working on multiple projects so that clients were used to not being, have their calls returned all the time. But I can see that in other industries that would be problematic. Right. But I think there are a couple of things from this that we could all take away. And I think for me, being open about what I'm doing and when is something that I could change. And I'm sure many listeners could change immediately. Many thanks to Diane Thornhill and Emma Jacobs. If you want to read more about The End of the Weekend, search for Emma Jacobs on FT.com and I'll put links in the show notes. 
And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com or with me at Isabel Berwick on Twitter and Instagram. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times, with thanks to the producer, Anna Sinfield, and executive producer, Joe Wheeler, with research from Pippa Smith and Lee Meyer. We have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Join us next week when we tackle empathy, what experts are calling both the cause and the solution to burnout.